From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How deadly, how transmissible, how preventable? We answer your questions about coronavirus and find out how prepared Colorado is. Meanwhile, there remain holes in what disease experts know, so what do we still have to learn? Then, sorting through the state's plans to bring down the high cost of health care. You can do more by partnering the right organizations together and not just attacking price. And later. There was a time when wildlife managers tried to get peregrine falcons to make their home in downtown Denver. They realized that skyscrapers mimic the cliffs and canyons peregrines are drawn to and provide these ledges where they can build nests. So what happened? And a list from the Denver Public Library of its most checked out books. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to start by answering your questions about coronavirus. That suspected case in Lakewood turned out to be negative. But meanwhile, in China, the death toll is mounting, and there are now five confirmed cases in this country. So how prepared is Colorado, and what power do you have to protect yourself? Dr. Michelle Barron is medical director of infection prevention at University of Colorado Hospital. And doctor, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. Do you take a lot of comfort from the fact that the Lakewood case turned out to be negative for coronavirus? It's certainly a good thing. I think we would prefer not to have any cases in Colorado. But I think given the number of cases that we're seeing in China and other parts of the world, it won't be unexpected if we do have a positive case at some point. Okay. So you expect that to happen in Colorado. And are you preparing accordingly at your hospital? Yes. I think most hospitals in the city as well as the state have been watching this and have means to be able to screen people when they come in to either a clinic or the emergency department. And certainly at University of Colorado and UC Health, we've been working on this for a couple of weeks now. Okay, we'll talk about screenings in in just a bit. But is coronavirus something very old, something very new? It's actually very old. Coronavirus is the most common cause of the common cold. And so we've actually all probably had a coronavirus at some point in our lifetime. Something about this strain, though, is different. Uh, There's been reporting that it's actually because of wild animal markets in this portion of China. What do we know about this? Can we call it a novel strain? The reason it's called novel is just means that it's not previously been identified as one of the hundreds of strains of coronavirus that have been out there. Believe it or not, a lot of viruses do originate from animals and sometimes they then jump ship. What's unique about this particular virus is that most coronaviruses will cause runny nose, a cough, might feel a little punky, but you're not necessarily going to get severely ill from this. With this, people are getting pneumonia and obviously dying from it, which is kind of atypical for this type of virus. Atypical. We don't normally see that with coronavirus. Correct. Uh, I wonder if we could get to the questions you cannot answer about this novel strain before we get to the ones you can. What remains a mystery at this early point? I think there are several things that remain a mystery, and some of it is just that we haven't had access to the information that would help us answer that. Out out of China, you mean? Out of China. So we sort of estimate that it could be incubation period is somewhere between one day and 14 days. But we don't know. 
um, we still don't have a really good handle on who's getting sick. Is it there's some data that suggests that at least reports there's no data that we've actually been able to examine, but there's reports that maybe the older people are a little bit more susceptible and kids a little less susceptible. But again, we haven't seen those numbers. Now that would be typical of pneumonia in general, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so uh, how contagious is it? Like. If you and I are sitting next to each other on a train, or you live in my household, or I was in line with you at the grocery store, obviously, slightly different scenarios, how likely is it that then you're going to get the virus from me? We still don't know that as well. Or is it just about if you actively sneeze on me, that's how it's transmitted? Correct. So, okay, those are all very important questions you can't answer. Is the sense that China is just not releasing that information? What's the barrier? Um, I think that they are releasing information in pieces, but not, again, getting reports is different than actually being able to access the data. And so I know the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the Centers for Disease Control are actively trying to participate in these things. So I am hopeful that they will, their experts will be able to actually look at the raw data and be able to draw conclusions rather than just being told, this is what we found. As a scientist, you always want to verify the information before making any kind of recommendations. Yeah, and so that's information you hope will be forthcoming. We're very hopeful. Okay, if this begins as manifesting like a cold, it, it strikes me that it's cold and flu season. It is. Is diagnosing something like this in Colorado something of a needle in a haystack, or do you just simply rely on whether someone has been to this portion of China? At this point in time, there's still a link to travel to that area of the country. Certainly, that could change, and it may be that we'll have to expand that definition. But right now, simply because it might have gotten so widespread. Correct. And so, um, if somebody came in with those symptoms, you would do the standard testing that we would do anyway. So you would potentially be screened for the flu, for other viruses that are circulating right now. If one of those was positive, the likelihood that you have this novel coronavirus is pretty low. Ah. Um, so you'd eliminate those first. You would, you'd and ask then ask about travel to China. You would ask about travel to China. And then if you were negative, then you would have to think, well, hmm, what were you doing there? Were you just in an airport? Were you in a city? Did you go to one of the markets? So you'd have to get more history. Were you around somebody who was sick? There has been a test developed in very quick, uh, very quick process by the CDC. Uh, I think right now you have to send any sort of tests to the CDC for testing, correct? That, that's correct. It would have to, it goes typically through the local health department or the state health department and then is sent to CDC to actually process. And they're hoping that the kits that they've developed at the CDC will be in state and county health departments in the relatively near future. Okay, so those could be arriving in Colorado. It's a remarkable thing thing to think that this just emerged January 7th or so. Correct. And they're already tested on I know. It's amazing what we can do nowadays. And the fact that they were able to do that so quickly is pretty exciting and also should be some reassurance to that, too. Okay. We asked for people's questions on Twitter. At Keeper of Inns wants to know about prevention. What's your best advice? What you would do for cold season. Wash your hands frequently. Use alcohol-based sanitizers. Cover your mouth. Um, um, wear a mask if you really are sick or somebody around you is sick and you don't want to get sick. And then cleaning surfaces is really important. How much do we touch our phones and touch our surfaces in our office without even thinking about it and then rub our eyes and itch our nose, which is the way these viruses often become 
coming to you, so to speak. So fundamentally, your advice is hand, like hand washing, like the kind of good hygiene we'd want to practice year round. Those masks, I see a lot of folks in Asia wearing those masks. Why are they effective? Are they effective? Um, so they potentially would be effective if it's what we call a droplet. And so it, that spittle that when somebody sneezes or coughs that lands on surfaces, obviously if your mouth and nose is covered and somebody coughs on you, then it's not going to actually enter that area. The other reason I think they're actually helpful is because if you itch, you're not actually touching your nose. You're touching the surface of that particular mask. Right. I think about how many times I touch my face in a day, just almost inadvertently. It happens. And that's a way to spread disease. That's the way it spreads. This is why you get sick typically in the winter because we're already a little dry and you're a little more itchy and you're more likely to itch and not realize you just grab something with virus. On Twitter, Ethan Bellamy of Greenwood Village wants to know if SARS is the best analog for what might occur here. Just briefly. Um, SARS certainly is what we are worried about, what I think everybody's prepared for. And SARS um, had a very rapid uh, transmission and infection rate. And so I think it doesn't look like that's what's happening. But again, it's very early in this situation for us not being able to tell. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. We may have you back as this evolves, Dr. Barron. Thank you. Dr. Michelle Barron, Medical Director of Infection Prevention at the University of Colorado Hospital. She answered questions about coronavirus. Just to say, a suspected case in Colorado turned out to be negative. Meanwhile, five confirmed cases across the country and the death toll mounts in China. is shaping up to be one of the biggest debates at the state capitol this year, what to do about the high cost of health care. Prices in Colorado have risen sharply over the past decade, and lawmakers want to find a way to bring them down. This debate pits Governor Jared Polis against hospitals and insurance companies. CPR health reporter John Daly is here for Perspective. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. So CPR News has been meeting voters across the state, and they say health care is one of their biggest concerns. I heard that firsthand talking to people in front of a library in Jefferson County at one of these Voter Voices events. Why, first off, is health care more expensive here? Well, one analysis from 2018 found the average cost for healthcare in Colorado is nearly 20% higher than comparable states. So there are two components to how much healthcare costs a patient. One, how much the services cost. So how much does a hospital charge an insurer to provide an MRI, for instance? And two, the patient's insurance. How much do they pay for insurance and how much does it cover? And what do we know? Well, a new state report was released just last week. It found high prices and operating costs at hospitals are driving the cost of health care up dramatically in Colorado. Uh, that's more than elsewhere in the U.S. they found. The report found hospital profits shot up by more than 280 percent between 2009 and 2018. Oh. On the other hand, way more people have insurance than they did 10 years ago. The cost of insurance has historically gone up, but a few things the state did in the last year have cut that down some. Still, in 22 counties in Colorado, people have only one option for an insurance company, and they really can't shop around. 22 counties. We've reported that Governor Polis and Democratic lawmakers who control both the state house and Senate are considering a public option to bring some competition to those places. Uh, clarify what's 
proposed in Colorado. Yeah, that's right. State health leaders unveiled their first version of the plan in the fall. The funny thing is Colorado's proposed public option is not exactly the same one popularized by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Their plans would let people opt to buy a public insurance plan like Medicare, hence Medicare for All. Colorado's edition is still just a draft and it's being called a state option. And rather than cut out private insurers, which is what insurers fear about an expanded government system, it actually enlarges their role. Now, how would that roll out? Well, at first, the plan would only be for Coloradans who purchase health insurance themselves on the, on the, pro- yeah, on the okay. private market. Yeah, the state would require private insurers already offering plans on the individual market to offer a state-crafted plan. Coverage would start in 2022. Supporters say the concept involves several strategies that will cut down consumer costs, it limit hospital charges, it increase the amount insurance companies spend caring for patients, it pass rebates from drug companies along to consumers, and it would ideally promote competition. So what do you think that would mean for consumers? You know, it's really hard to say for sure since this hasn't been done anywhere else. But Governor Jared Polis touted the public option idea in his annual State of the State address earlier this month. He said that the plan could save consumers as much as 9 to 18 percent a year. That would amount to potentially thousands of dollars annually for the typical person or family. Uh, it's really simple market economics. When you have more choices as a consumer, companies have to compete for your business, which means lower prices. He said the public option would really help people in the 22 rural counties that we talked about before, where there are currently only one insurer. So really, no competition and no choice. Now, hospitals and insurance companies say a public option would be really damaging. What's their argument here? That's right. They're really not in favor at this point. The head of the state's insurers group, the Colorado Association of Health Plans, warned the plan will result in a one-size-fits-all approach. Amanda Massey said that uh, it would replace market choice and competition, and she predicted it would likely result in cost increases for the over 50 percent of Coloradans who get health insurance through an employer. That's That's a lot of folks. And hospitals are particularly fired up about government setting caps on hospital costs. I spoke to Peter Banco. He's the president and CEO of Centura Health. That's one of the state's largest hospital systems. He says the state's public option plan is unsustainable. He says it would jeopardize access to care, might cause employers to drop health coverage. He thinks the state setting price levels, setting the payment that your hospital or your doctor gets for giving you a medical service is not a good idea. Rate setting is not a solution. Price is only one small part of the equation. We've been able to partner with health plans and deliver greater savings and more affordability. You can do more by partnering the right organizations together and not just attacking price. Okay, so the debate rages on about Mm -hmm. the public option. What else would the Polis administration like to see done about health care costs? Well, reinsurance, you've heard about that. Reinsurance is basically insurance for insurance companies, hence the flashy name, (laughs) the, the patients whose care is the priciest account for about half, half of national health spending. Reinsurance helps cover the costs of those patients. Lawmakers passed Colorado's program in the last legislative session, and in June, the federal government signed off on it. A major source of revenue for the state's program, which costs 
$260 million the first year is a fee on hospitals. And this was an idea hospitals initially supported, right? But now they're suing the state over this program. What's going on here? Yeah, more contentiousness. Uh, This month, the powerful Colorado Hospital Association filed suit against the Polis administration over payments to that fund that pays for the reinsurance program. Now, this program is the centerpiece of the governor's claim to lower insurance premiums. So the very next day, the governor was here on your show on Colorado Matters, and he said that Coloradans are being ripped off by the healthcare industry. And earlier, he sharply criticized hospital profits in that state of the state address we were talking about as well. So that was all in the first two weeks of the lawmakers being back in session at the Capitol. Now, beyond the hospital's lawsuit, some issues with the way it's funded may conflict with TABOR, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. So all that could seriously complicate funding for the program. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and our health reporter John Daly is giving us the skinny on the health care debate raging at the state capitol. What other bills could we see this session to cut health care costs? Well, drug pricing, we're hearing a lot about that these days. Majority Democrats want several legislative measures. You can expect legislation on price transparency. This would provide data to address factors that drive the cost of prescription drugs. Lawmakers are expected to look at setting up a prescription drug affordability board to set payment targets for some medications. And we've heard a lot about importing drugs from Canada Mm. for many years. The state also wants to move ahead with that. They're looking for a green light from the federal government. Uh, And the the big reason is that drug prices are lower in Canada. It seems like a lot of this fight is about how much government should intervene in the healthcare industry. You know, should, should the state be able to say how much medication or an MRI costs? Yeah, exactly. This is a long-standing debate. How much should healthcare essentially be a free market where market forces determine how the system works? And and what about if the system is kind of out of whack, which is what Democrats uh, on the the Capitol and, and the gov- governor seem to think, that we've got these high costs and high pro- hospital profits that are, are really uh, making it hard for individual people and families to afford their health care. So should the government intervene to rein that in? If so, how... That's a fight that you'll see playing out this session. For why, sure. why, John, is the Polish administration targeting hospitals in particular? Are they really at fault for high prices? Well, there's a real big difference of opinion there. Basically, uh, the administration says that they've studied this. They've got the data to back up that the hospital prices are really high and that's driving Colorado's costs. But the hospitals would say, no, there are other factors. We've got a high cost of living here, uh, very uh, intense uh, uh, shortage of labor that helps drive the costs, all that. So there's a big difference of opinion, uh, but certainly that's the battle line, no doubt about it. What's the next thing we should be looking for, John? Well, I think we're going to keep seeing this uh, fight uh, play out uh, here at the Capitol. I spoke with Allie Morgan. She follows the legislature for the nonpartisan Colorado Health Institute. She says the stakes are high for all sides. Hospitals versus the state and the police administration is going to be one of the headlines, if not the headline of the session, and the tensions are already pretty high. John, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. You bet. CPR health reporter John Daly on the debate over how to reduce the high cost of health care in Colorado. What books do people check out the most at the Denver Public Library? It's something I wondered after reading a New York Times story about their library's most popular titles. 
Denver apparently can only go back as far as 2011 due to the limitations of their computer system. So let's pull a David Letterman and pour over the top 10. Ladies and gentlemen, here's tonight's top 10 list. Let's go. Unlike Letterman, I'm not going to go sequentially. Instead, let's focus on a few themes that emerge. Four of the top 10 are bestsellers that became movies. At number 10, Gone Girl. I've killed for you. Who else can say that? You think you'd be happy with a nice Midwestern girl? No way, baby. Smack in the middle of the list at number five, The Art of Racing in the Rain. He picked me out of a pile of pups, a tangled mass of paws and tails. (laughs) This one. Now, slots four and two are books from the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series. Again, books that have become movies. We got perspective on this from Denver Public Library Circulation Manager Jennifer Hoffman. Having spent some time working with kids in the children's library and having worked on the bookmobile a number of times over the years, the position of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, the fact that many books in that series were topping the list, Mm -hmm. is no surprise. I Mm -hmm. never went out on the bookmobile where multiple kids were not asking for that book. Number three goes to The Help by Catherine Stockett, which Hollywood also picked up. These women raise white children. We love them and they love us, but they can't even use the toilets in our houses. Minnie, are you in there? You are fired! Now, there were some surprises on the list, books you either wouldn't expect or might not even know of. At number eight, Poems from Black Africa from 1975. Again, Jennifer Hoffman. Langston Hughes is connected with that book, and I could see that school groups or even even college-age kids might be reading it. I read some reviews on Amazon, and people just really praised the poetry in it, the quality of the poems that were brought together for that collection. And at number six, the Ashley Book of Knots, K-N-O-T-S. That's like the quintessential knot-tying book. Looking into it a little bit, it seems to maybe be a little bit more focused on tying knots for sea journeys. So that was interesting in a landlocked state to see so much interest in knot tying. But, you know, I'm sure there's lots of applications for outdoors. So pretty cool that that was there. Okay, so we've mentioned seven of the top ten now. Hop on Pop by Dr. Seuss ranks seventh. A book called Marco Polo, ninth. But the top slot, the most checked out book in the last decade, according to the Denver Public Library, well, it's not a Harry Potter title, Hoffman says. It's still kind of surprising that at least one of them or or this series in general didn't pop up on the list. Now, number one is... Arthur Meets the President, a children's title bolstered by the PBS Kids Show. And who can forget our 31st president, Herbert Hoover, who promised a chicken in every pot. There you have it, the most checked out books at the Denver Public Library. Perhaps you're bemoaning the fact that not all of them are the classics. But given how many are children's books, we can take comfort in knowing that kids are still reading. Now, if you expand beyond books, DVDs spin into the top 10 of checked out items, Mary Poppins, Mulan, Toy Story, and Beauty and the Beast. Oh, isn't this amazing? It's my favorite part because you'll see. Discover that 
chapter three. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the Overground Railroad. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Colorado Public Radio continues to bring you special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial on CPR News when proceedings are underway. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of Colorado Public Radio's commitment to keep you informed. During this special coverage, we're also making the regular CPR News daily schedule available on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been called the Bible of Black Travel. The Green Book listed hotels, restaurants, stores, even entire communities considered safe for African-American travelers across the U.S. at a time that led up to the civil rights movement. Of course, that includes spots here in Colorado in the Green Book. And our next guest says the Green Book is much more than a historical document, but it can tell us something about the country today. Candace Taylor's new book is called Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. She's speaking in Denver tonight. Welcome to town. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Overground Railroad became a very personal project for you. You share stories of your stepfather, Ron Burford, who opened up to you for the first time as you were researching the book. Uh, And you begin with something that happened to him as a young boy. The family car was pulled over, and his father uh, was driving across the Tennessee border at this time. Share this story with us. Yes, uh, this is a story that Ron told me. At the, I was maybe 46 years old. He had never told me this story, and when I was researching this book, I had read about these men who would have chauffeur's hats, um, as a ruse or a prop to, if especially if they had a nice car during the Jim Crow era, to just kind of basically stay safe on the road um, against racist sheriffs and police officers. And I asked Ron one day in the kitchen, I said, you know, is this, I keep reading about this chauffeur's hat, is this real? And this story tumbles out. Um, and he tells me, yes, he was driving across the border with his dad and his mother in the front seat. And they were pulled over by a sheriff. And as soon as they were pulled over, his father said, you know, don't say a word. And he'd never heard his father talk to him in that tone. And Ron was seven years old. He didn't understand what was happening. And the sheriff, you know, came to the side of the car and said, you know, whose car is this? And who are these people with you? And where are you going? And the implication being, you can't have a car this nice. Exactly. Something must be a, a foul. Exactly. He had a good job with the railroad. They had a nice new 1953 Chevy, um, something probably he couldn't have afforded, the sheriff couldn't afford it. And so his father said, um, this is my employer's car. Hmm. He looked at his wife and pretended he didn't know her and said, this is the maid and this is her son and I'm driving them home. And... Ron, you know, didn't say anything, but he knew, you know, he, he he was paralyzed. And the sheriff then said, you know, well, where's your hat? And his father said, it's hanging right in the back, officer. And it was always there. And he said that hat, Ron said that hat had always been there, but he never knew what it was for because he'd never seen anybody huh. wearing it. So the, the chauffeur's hat was this way of saying, uh, if you, you had to play the role of chauffeur for a cop, you had that prop there. Mm-hmm. And he said he saw that hat 
in most black men's cars that he went into after that in the back seat. I want to note that your stepfather, Ron, died the week you started riding Overground Railroad. Mm -hmm. And you say that he went from being your guardian to your guardian angel. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you mean by that. Like, how did you feel his presence? Well... I had a, I didn't have a whole lot of time to write this book. I'd been researching it since 2013. And so when I finally sat down to write it, I, I knew I had to be serious. And I was Ron had died that week. And all I could do is I was in living in Bisbee at the time and the sun would come over the mountains. And all I could do is sit there and write in the mornings and cry. And I just remember the stories that Ron had told me because he was – talking to me when I was doing a lot of the research of scouting on these trips. he would We would just talk for hours in the car. And he'd tell me all these stories about civil rights he'd never told me before. Mm. And so I was just writing these stories. And I called my agent and I said, you know, I know I'm supposed to be writing the book, but all I can do is write about Ron. And I think I'm going to open the book with his story of him sitting in the backseat of the car. And she said, just keep going. And so what I mean by it, he became my guardian angel is that by 10 days later, I realized all those stories were touchstones in almost every chapter in the book. And so he becomes a narrative thread mm. that he wouldn't have been in had some, he not died. Yeah, and something that might have just been sort of almost a documentary, right. if you will. Right. Uh, we're talking about Overground Railroad, the green book and the roots of black travel in America. My guest is its author, Candace Taylor. So the green book published from 36 to 67 You write, this was a time when car travel symbolized freedom in America. But since racial segregation was in full force, the open road wasn't open at all. Black travelers often packed food and everything they'd need in case they couldn't find a safe place to stay. And you write that your stepfather, Ron, just insisted on a couple of things. Driving at night, if he could, and paying really close attention to the speed limit, not too fast, not too slow. First of all, why night? Oh, it used to drive me crazy. I didn't understand it most of my childhood because I'd known Ron since I was 12, but he would always go back to, my parents lived in Columbus, Ohio, and so he would always drive back to Tennessee to see his family and friends. And they'd always leave in the middle of the night. And I was always so worried he was going to get in an accident and my mom would be with him. And I was like, why are you putting my mother in danger? Why don't you drive during the day like a normal person? And um, he would he would just always say traffic. And it wasn't until I did this project, and especially after he died, I realized um, the more stories I read about black men during that time, they drove at night because he could be invisible, and he would be he wouldn't be subjected to police harassment. And mind you, Ron was in he was in law enforcement. He ended up working in the prison system. There were only five people above him in the whole state, so he was in law enforcement, but yet still very suspicious and had these long-held scars that he carried with him. And this was, even at the risk of his own safety, um, he thought it was better to drive in the middle of the night. Another concern for black travelers were sundown towns, that is, a place where African Americans were just not welcome after dark. And my understanding is that there were thousands of these across the country, including in Colorado. But I understand that now it's, it's kind of hard to find proof they existed. Yes. Um, James Lowen, he was he wrote the, he was the author of a book called Sundown Towns. And I've spoken to him about this as well. Um, and he noticed that it was really hard. Uh, he was a white he's a white man. 
And he would go into these small towns that were notably sundown towns, but to find the actual signs that usually said inward, don't let the sun set on you here, or they'd have a bell that would ring at 6 p.m., alerting the locals, uh, the either domestics or black people who were working in the community to leave. Um, That was a big, it it was something that we know, there's enough written testimony that we know it happened. But the physical evidence. But the physical evidence, he would go to these uh, communities, to the libraries or to the archives, and they'd say, oh, yeah, we did have one, but we, we just got rid of it, or, you know, we we destroyed it or we were so ashamed or and a lot of them wouldn't even admit that they had them and then you'd find out later that they did hmm. so yeah this history is buried for sure for your research you drove nearly 40,000 miles across America you're driving for the book tour mm-hmm. as well uh, you spent time in Colorado and uh, the Denver neighborhood of five points is listed in the 1939 to 1955 editions of the green book uh, this was a neighborhood known as the Harlem of the West. Uh, for the uninitiated, how did it get that designation? Well, it was, even in the first wave of the Great Migration in the teens, this predates the Green Book, there were throngs of black folks that were settling in Five Points in the Denver neighborhood. Um, also, Madam C.J. Walker, there were ma- major people who were there. Um, so when the Green Book comes into publication in '36. You've got the 40s, which is the highest rate of the second wave of the Great Migration mm. happening. So you have even more black folks. So people who had settled during the first migration were building on their family members coming um, during the second wave of the Great Migration. And there was it, it really earned its title. There were so many black-owned businesses, nightclubs. Um, Denver was very segregated, so they couldn't be in downtown areas or other areas in the uh, suburban areas in the city. So Five Points became just a a nexus, a bastion of black culture and identity. I mean, I think of the Rossonian, which still stands in Five Points, Landmark Hotel and Jazz Club. I mean, the names that went through the Rossonian are remarkable. Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Charlie Parker. Yes. What What would you say was its role in the heyday of the Green Book? Well, it was fabulous because there was also so many musicians that were traveling west and the first place they'd come usually is the Rossonian when they hit the west because that was a safe place. They knew Five Points was a good area. There were over 80 green book sites listed in the Five uh, Five Points. Just in that neighborhood. Just in that neighborhood. That's remarkable. So it was a real nexus and the Rossonian was kind of the beacon (laughs) because, I mean, if you look at it, it's such a beautiful building. I'm so thankful it's still with us. Only 3% of the Green Book sites are really even have their name that seem to be under operation. I know it's it's not operating now, but we are looking into getting it back and up right. and going, there right? There are plans so, to, right, re, that's exciting. Right, revitalize the Rossonian. Mm-hmm. That, that's a remarkable statistic. Only 3% of Green Book sites are, are still, still operating. operating. Um, about 80% are gone. There's just no, there's nothing left. Either they're freeways or they've been replaced by um, gentrification or urban renewal. You scouted nearly 5,000 sites for this book. And uh, one of them in Pueblo, still in existence, the Coronado Lodge in Pueblo. Mm-hmm. Reflect on that. It's beautiful. It's really that's and it's unusual because it's got that southwestern adobe um, architecture. It's a really unusual. And I just spoke with uh, um, Mr. Simmons, who is 
doing really important work, and he's got it listed. It was approved in this, by the state historic preservation office to um, to nominate for the National Register. Yeah, there's the Coronado so, Lodge and Coronado Motel in yeah, Pueblo, Colorado. amazing. Just announced this month yeah. that it's been approved for moving forward for that designation. Mm-hmm. You believe the Green Book is a great entryway to understanding the past, but also to understanding our present. It does make me wonder how many of the fears that you described for your family back then persist today mm-hmm. for black motorists. Mm-hmm. Well, even when I was doing research, field research, there was a travel advisory listed from the NAACP for the whole state of Missouri. Um, so that was happening while I was doing this research. Do you remember what that advisory said, like just specifically? It just, there was so, it was after Ferguson and there was so much evidence. There was a huge task force that really looked at how many black people were being pulled over and they saw that it was something like 75 times more likely if you were black that you would be pulled over and potentially harassed and arrested and maybe killed. So they thought it was prudent for them to put an official travel advisory up for the whole state of Missouri. Um, you have things like being black and Airbnb, you know, that hashtag uh, came out when I was doing this work. Um and it's not that Airbnb was a racist company, but there were so many people who were, who had Airbnbs that were being discriminatory against black folks. Is there a modern day equivalent of the chauffeur's cap? Is there something that you do when you're driving? Well, you know, I, I learned a lot of different quirks and different patterns that people kind of picked up on, whereas um, now I would read that black men won't put their put things or registration or even their license in their wallet because it looks like they're reaching for something. So they, they want to have it on the console so it so their hands are always visible. Um, there are practices like that that I think we've used. Back in the day, um, They black men would put their registration in their wallet to make sure because then it would prove that it's their car because the officer would assume they had stolen the car. So if you mm. put the registration in the glove compartment. Gosh, it's like you can't win either way. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Why don't we wrap up by remembering your stepfather, Ron Burford? He worked, as we said, in the criminal justice system for nearly 40 years. I think he was a parole counselor. And he died recently from complications due to exposure to Agent Orange while serving as a Marine in Vietnam. As you worked on Overground Railroad, Um, He told you that it should be the most important thing in your life. Um, Hearing that now, seeing the resulting book, what are what are your thoughts? Well, I think that just rings true to um, he used to say, you know, he's like, when you write this, when you sit down to write this book, he's like, yeah, it has to be the most important thing. He's like, you don't need to be out there gallivanting because that's what he (laughs) that was his word for for what I did, (laughs) um, which is so wrong. Uh, But. I think that, um, you know, I think he's smiling on on this now. I don't, like I said, if he hadn't died, it's bittersweet because I miss him. And I had not had a really close relationship with him in my entire life. It was really just until I started this book. So when he came back into my life in a very meaningful way, um, for his stories and his spirit to guide me through this 
time and the book is being so well received. I just I look up and I think he's he has something to do with all of this. So. He's in there. Candace, yeah. thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you very much. Candace Taylor is the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. She'll speak at the Blair Caldwell African-American Research Library in Denver's Five Points tonight. Her book is also being made into a traveling Smithsonian exhibition, which launches in June. There was a time, this was a few decades ago, when peregrine falcons were set up to live on a Denver skyscraper. It was part of a national Hail Mary pass to save the species. Marie Valenzuela worked downtown then, remembers this chapter well, and it's what prompted her to ask this question through Colorado Wonders. They were constantly in the paper, and we could go out at lunch or during breaks and look up and sometimes see one soaring. And then all of a sudden they were gone and never found out what happened to them. Now, CPR's Kelly Griffin is in charge of Colorado Wonders, and she has been looking into this. Hi, Kel. Hey, Ryan. When this idea to use skyscrapers to save peregrines came about, it was in the 1970s, the birds were in dire straits. They were considered extinct east of the Mississippi, and there were only about 40 known pairs in the West. What was hitting them so hard at that time? It was the pesticide DDT. Oh, DDT. Very common, starting in the 1940s. It was a product of the war, and it was developed to kill mosquitoes and prevent malaria. It was also used on crops. There's a video on YouTube of a truck spraying DDT, literally fogging children, eating at picnic tables and playing in a pool. With the war discovered DDT in special sprayers, sections of the city are blanketed with the insecticide in the fight to stop the spread of the dread poliomyelitis. Every suspected spot is sprayed. So it was widely used, but it didn't directly kill peregrines. I talked with Erin Katzner, director of global engagement for the Peregrine Fund. Her group plays an important role in the story. And here's how she describes the effect of DDT. Songbirds would come along and eat one of the insects that was covered in DDT. And then those smaller birds would become slower and sick and became easy prey for the peregrine falcons and other large birds of prey also, like bald eagles and osprey. And when birds of prey would eat these other birds, it didn't necessarily cause them to become sick. But what it did do was it actually leached the calcium from their bodies. So when they would lay an egg, the eggshell would be too thin to support their weight when they were incubating the egg. No eggs, no new birds. Right. And once scientists figured out that DDT was the problem, people got together and it was banned a few years later. But there was still this question of how you reestablish the peregrine falcons. There'd been no species reestablished at that point. Huh. Tom Cade uh, was an ornithologist at Cornell University, also an avid falconer, and he made it his mission to bring back the peregrines. He founded the Peregrine Fund, and in his work, he realized that skyscrapers mimic the cliffs and canyons that peregrines live in in the wild. Oh. And they're drawn to that. They provide ledges and places for the nest, which is actually called a scrape. But the nest is called a scrape? Yes. Now, I know that cities have lots of pigeons the falcons could eat, but it seems risky, though. I mean, you have this bird that's barely holding on, and you introduce it into arguably like the most unnatural environment. I had the same thought. And I asked Aaron Katzner if people thought it was weird at the time. It was sort of a stab in the dark of how do we help these birds that are in the wild? How do we help bolster their numbers and bring them back 
from the brink of extinction in a faster manner than would happen naturally in the wild by just removing DDT. It was something that everybody was just kind of willing to give a try at that point in time. And when you learn more about this bird, you really get why people would be so passionate about preventing its extinction. For instance, how fast do you think it flies? And I want to give you a hint. They are the fastest creature on the planet. Faster than cheetahs? Yes. 120 miles an hour. No, get this. A peregrine falcon was clocked diving at over 240 miles per hour. 240 miles an hour. hour. Wow, okay. (laughs) And I looked it up. That's faster than a 747 at takeoff. Now, more typically, they are flying about 40 to 60 miles per hour when they hunt. They hunt in a really unique way. They do what we call hunting on the wing, which means they hunt in the air. They hunt other birds almost primarily. And they will ball up their feet and actually punch their prey out of the sky. So anybody who's ever seen a peregrine capture has seen a puff of feathers. And there's usually a bang that goes along with it when the peregrine hits its prey item. Wow. But how do they come to be placed on a Denver skyscraper? Colorado Parks and Wildlife was very active in this national movement to save the peregrines. There were a few pairs in the wild in Colorado, and some were being bred in captivity around the country. So the agency was putting the young birds in places where they hoped they would thrive. And they did try downtown Denver at the old Denver Post building. How well did that work? Well, it depends on how you define worked. Overall, reestablishing the peregrine population worked great in Colorado and other places. By 1990, the state counted plenty of the falcons out in the wild and stopped trying to get them to nest downtown. I see. So it's not that the downtown experiment rescued the bird, brought it back from the brink. Exactly. It was a larger movement. Okay. Aaron Katzner with the Peregrine Fund says the falcon story is the example of saving a species. In fact, the peregrine falcon was one of the first animals to be added to the Endangered Species Act. And then in 1999, it was one of the first animals to be removed from the Endangered Species Act for the right reasons. She says many of the cities that introduce peregrines still have them. There are a lot in New York City and other areas of that state. They're in skyscrapers and on bridges. And you can find webcams trained on these sites. And there'll be something to actually look at probably starting in February because that's when the birds start to lay their eggs. So Kastner says they've really taken to city life even as their numbers have grown in the wild. And I've heard of people, you know, sitting at a cafe outside in a city, all of a sudden having a pigeon fall into their lap, which I think would be an alarming uh, lunch activity. But when you are sharing a space with Peregrine, you're going to see all sorts of different things. Oh, my gosh. So now I have a new item for my bucket list. Ways to have a pigeon just fall in your lap from a collision with a peregrine falcon. Yeah, that's right. quite a brush with nature. <laughs> it is indeed. But it sounds like you might have to go to another city to, to see things like this, just not downtown Denver. Actually, maybe not. The state does keep an eye out for the peregrines downtown. And I talked to David Clute of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. He said six or seven years ago, he tracked a pair for a while downtown. And then a couple of years ago, he saw some juveniles hanging out on the 16th Street Mall. Okay. Well, high up above it. I asked him how you could tell if you were seeing a peregrine falcon in Denver. And he said it would be on very high perches on the edges of buildings. And if you're really patient, you might see them speed through the air and explode a pigeon. And explode a pigeon. And if you have really keen ears, you might be able to detect them. Here's a recording of a peregrine falcon, just in case. 
Well, Kelly, this has been fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Kelly Griffin is in charge of Colorado Wonders. What in Colorado do you wonder about? Let us know. We'll try to find the answer at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Finally today, music from a singer-songwriter who hails from Elbert County, northeast of Colorado Springs. Veronique Van Pelt's vocals are reminiscent of Mariah Carey's, and they shine in songs like this. I go to shows all along, maybe dumb cause I know. This is Like We Did from the album Veronique Van Pelt's Nonesuch Palace. Now at other times, Van Pelt's music treads into more experimental territory, hinting at her jazz background and that of her album's producer, Alex Scott. These words Come on me like a heart attack They tell me there's no turning back How could you Make it look simple to do For me There's no forgetting you This is a track called Nam Port by Colorado artist Veronique Van Pelt. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News.